Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Hi, church. I'm John, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm the student minister here at Galileo Church, and I'm really glad to see you all here tonight and imagine you all out there. Um, Jeremy cued us to the worship series, as well as Steph, which were a little over halfway through, called Praying in a Crowded House, Thus All the Clutter with the prayers of our ancestors in faith as our focus, we're reading through the Psalms best hits, if you will. We're thinking about what it looks like to clear out the clutter in our minds and spirits from the theologies we inherited and focusing on what the prayer does to us, the prayers. We began this series with praying to awaken, then to remember. Last week was praying to cry And tonight, we're thinking about praying to complain. As Katie reminded us last week, about half of the 150 psalms in the Bible are songs of lament. Where what is happening in the poet's world is causing them or their whole community pain, and they are calling on God to bear witness to their situation, to feel anger, fear, grief, and pain. The poet also calls on God to take note and action on their behalf. Tonight marks the second um, week reading these laments, and I'm picking up with the second half of Psalm 69, from verses 16 to 36. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me, redeem me, set me free because of my enemies. You know the insults I receive and my shame and dishonor. My foes all are known to you. Insults have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table be a trap for them, a snare for their allies. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute those whom you have struck down, those whom you wounded, uh, they attack still more. Add guilt to their guilt. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am lowly and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise the name of the Lord with a song. I will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Let the oppressed see it and be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. 
for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise the Lord's own that are in bonds. Let heaven and earth praise the Lord, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah, and God's servants shall live there and possess it. The children of God's servants shall inherit it, and those who love the Lord's name shall live in it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm asking myself, and you might be asking yourself, what does praying to complain look like? After all, the assumption underlying the book of Psalms is the potential efficacy of prayer. When we pray, we believe that God will hear and will respond as a result of our prayer. When songs of our tradition challenge this premise, suspending the answer even for a moment, about whether God will hide God's face from us amidst all we are feeling that often we can't even describe. What does praying to complain look like? Why bother? I feel that the weightiness of this psalm and its theme invite us to reflect on some of the bleakest moments in our experiences as we follow the poet of the psalm along their lament. To be honest, this psalm is really hard for me. Um, I do not know what part of me relates to it, but somewhere between hearing their pain and finding my own, I lose the thread. The poet in this psalm makes me really uncomfortable. I can track cognitively how they open themselves to God saying, here I am, this is what I feel, this is really shitty, do something about it. And yet, I am confronted with how hard it is for me to do the same. To complain directly, to name what I feel, to get angry. I'm struggling because of how I've been taught to police and micromanage my own emotions, to stifle the unruly ones, the bad ones. Maybe you can resonate as well. This psalm is troubling because it raises and leaves open questions about what it means to be prayerful and what it means to be faithful. Where is God when we are suffering? Is God moved like we are in the face of injustice? What do we do when suffering cannot go on in silence anymore? The psalm's complaint introduces a paradox that lingers with us that while the individual's complaint invokes communal witness and response, no one apart from this poet could ever know their particular pain as they experienced it, except for themselves. Yet, through naming and witnessing these feelings, we can identify their experience with our own experience of pain, and we are connected to each other by what we share intimately and can never really know fully of each other. I name this paradox because, in full disclosure, what we each hear in the poet's call for justice in the midst of their complaint will be unique to us, like parallel melodies of the silent symphony of our shared suffering. One thing I know is that this psalm is here in scriptures, that it has been handed down as instructive for people of faith to reflect on for sharing the complicated emotions of grief 
and rejection and anger and pain. The cluttered house of the spirit may be lined with shelves filled with neatly labeled salves, something about long suffering and that good things will come around in God's time, boxes of books on the best ways to cope with day after day of grief and anger. In come the poet's tears in Psalm 69 to fill this room and the water damage takes the labels with it. What's left? The opening scene of the psalm. The poet's situation is bleak. This moment in which they're calling out to God is tearful to the point of exhaustion. Their voice is raspy and faded. Their best efforts to open their eyes yield only indiscreet colors and shapes. They feel it in their body, in their eyes, their throat, their bones, which have left them crumpled. One thing after another flashes in their mind, the hurts, the insults, and injuries, like fast dripping water over days and weeks and months, the shouts that they should just get over it, get over the past's traumas and move on. These words tear away at their comfort and leave their eyes searching for God. Their mourning, however, stems back further than these insults. The poet is holding the memory of the community's loss, perhaps after the destruction of the temple, and remembering all those who were lost when seemingly because of God's own anger, their community was broken. The celebrations forgotten in place of numbing routine and amnesia for what and who was lost. It's their very dedication to naming their community's loss that incurs the insults from their neighbors and their family of origin. Their grief is not recognized as valid or supported in their community's practices. Their grief is disenfranchised from rituals. They name in public the lost sense of safety, lost self, and community identity following the trauma. They call on God to notice. If it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that shame has covered my face, please the poet to God, and it is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The poet announces their longing for restoration and grieves publicly. Their voice is an irritating reminder to the ears of their neighbors who prefer the amnesia to remembering the pain, an irritant to the powers that be. It is a reminder to remember, perhaps recognize for the first time, that the melting pot myth of our country's history is shorthand for you're only welcome if you are one of us. The defining us has, since the country's inception, been a moving target, fleeing from the amnesia of genocide, chattel slavery, the subjugation of everyone who is not white, cis, Protestant, male, the fear intrinsic to whiteness in the town's outraged members, irritated by the recognition, the reminder, the wake-up call. But the poet, the poet, understanding their community's exile as God's punishment, calls attention to the wrongs of their persecutor that add salt to this wound. For they persecute those whom you have struck down and those whom you have wounded, they attack still more, God, here and in their plea for restoration of Zion, the poet reminisces of their past role in ordering social life and community worship. Their sense of displacement is surely compounded by the lost livelihood built on their role in the temple as well. But it's not only among 
the bio family and the neighbors, but also at the public gathering places. The name of the poet has become synonymous with disruptive and offensive, reviled to the city officials and bystanders. They have, sworn their, they have worn their emotions on the sleeve and the town wants no more of it. A shift in the psalm. From their grief and continual crying, even as their tears rolled hot down their cheeks, their desire to be taken care of meets their awareness of this sustained injustice that they have just named. Anger is a normal human emotion and is normal in grief. Our prayer need not be scrutinized or sanitized. In that moment, the poet wants God to hate their enemies as much as they do, to curve the trajectory of their violence back at them, that God's own hand, after wiping away their tears, would wipe away their enemies as well, returning poison to their table, seasoned, in fact, with God's indignation and burning anger. Let the vengeance be, let the vengeance be yours, and let me be rid of the desire to enact it. The poet's anger is founded in real hurt, and they trust God and honor their pain with this honesty of what they are feeling. In our culture, we are told that unhappiness is disruptive and anger is a bad emotion, that it is not acceptable. Taking this psalm's trajectory as a model for what we as prayers do is a big ask to be vulnerable and honest. Many of us grew up unallowed to be upset. We were told to pretend to be happy and play pretend and put together. We were shown that sadness and frustration are wrong ways to feel, no, wrong ways to be. They are morally culpable. Frustration and sadness needed to be fixed, stifled, moved past and away from and forgotten as soon as possible. Expressing anger meant sitting in time out and alone because that is unlovable behavior. And only well-behaved people are worthy. One thing I do not know completely about the poet's context is what layering identities and status would have meant for their articulation of these bad feelings. Though we may reasonably guess that their social position as part of the clergy gave them at least the privilege of speaking in public. I can say that layered identities do affect what is appropriate for people today. Expressing anger in the face of injustice is not allowed equal permission for everyone. That's to say, the policing social norms of a culture preoccupied with control and order over reality and people's complexity. This culture does not afford everyone the same permission to be. Expressing anger in this culture is dangerous because it holds a mirror to the violence and rejection you experience. And visible anger can signal you out as threatening or disorderly. If you are queer, if you are poor, if you are female identified, if you are brown or black, if you are not white, cis, and male identified, says the culture of policing minds, bodies, and spirit, you should be ashamed in this response to having your needs unmet and to facing discrimination. Good people don't complain and don't feel anger. Something must be wrong with you and don't forget it. 
we find the poet of the psalm having named the harms, named the enemies, intention, and urging God's condemnation. Beneath their anger is heartbreak. The poet's heartbreak comes from their town's rejection of the grief that they feel on behalf of their neighbors and family dedicated to God in the experience of exile. Are you listening, God? I imagine a pause of silence long enough that carries the catharsis of their complaints when it has spread through their body, long enough that the poet's trust in the prayer returns slowly as their bones and voice returns. Voicing their lament, the poet reveals that the individual act of lament is intrinsically communal and that the pain that is felt individually can become shared. Their catharsis in feeling their feelings invites all those present to become aware. The poet exposes the usefulness of anger as a catalyst, as a spark, but not the change, not the enduring flame for justice. Because to be whole, we must be whole together. And to find space for our own pain, we find space for the pain of those in our community of beloveds. A final shift in the psalm. Whether they feel it or not, the poet believes God to be present with them in their suffering. So what do we do now? So what do we do now? Having brought this complaint before God and in the present presence of their community, believing that they are heard, trusting the next movement of the psalm from plea to condemnation, the poet's actions turn at last to praise. Praise? Let the oppressed see God's praise and be glad they call to their community. And you who seek God, let your hearts revive. Let heaven and earth praise the Lord, the seas, and everything that moves in them. I'm trusting the poet's words, and I'm trusting the presence of this psalm in our liturgy and worship. And I want to suggest that though through this psalm of lament and this individual lament, we hear a call to their community, perhaps including some of those same who have wronged them, to bear witness to the messy emotions. As we trust, God bears witness. To hear their praise as the sustaining note, not even as absurd as it sounds, praise on their voices that have just called for condemnation. The closing image of the psalm is one of wholeness and celebration, of the longed-for image of peace when justice has come. The poet does not fail to share the vision of the world they want to see, the restoration, after naming the world they actually see. To decry the current injustice and let the anger be a spark for change is important, and it is not the final note. Their praise suggests. Where grief has been disenfranchised, let the community come together. Where injustice continues, let anger be a spark. Where anger has been stifled, let the harm be fully named. Where the ritual for lament has been lost, let the song of lament be taken up by all here in the place of worship. 
Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.